Welcome back to Reformed Millennials, the podcast where finances, economic trends, and sports intersect. Cam and Joel help listeners better invest their time and money. Also, it's important for listeners to understand that investing in equities, fixed income instruments, and or alternative asset classes involves substantial risk of loss. Any action you may take as a result of the information presented in this podcast is your own responsibility. The information in this podcast is presented as a general educational, informational, and entertainment resource only. While Joel is registered to provide investment advice, this podcast does not provide individualized investment, tax, or insurance advice, nor is it meant as a recommendation to any listener to buy or sell any specific securities or otherwise take any other form of investment action. This is an excerpt of the full legal disclaimer that's available on the landing page of this podcast, which includes whether Cam Pitchers or Joel Shackleton have any ownership or interest in the specific securities discussed in this podcast. All right, Joel. So I'd like to start off by saying sorry to our loyal listeners for my nasally voice this week. Nothing I can do about it. I'd also like to start off by apologizing for our ill-timed take about <laughs> 50 minutes of discussion talking about Damian Lillard potentially coming to the Toronto Raptors. And Ooh, we literally left that. the office, got there, and I think the trade went through to the Milwaukee Bucks. So anyone listening to the podcast... Literally, when it was released, was wrong. So everything that we, we are not about, sports insiders, we are not, and I don't even think that was that's that's the thing about the fluidity of all of these things. It doesn't matter if it's sports or tech news or whatever it might be. All these reports can come out, and we can spend all day talking about them, and then it might go in a completely different direction. Uh, you know, two minutes later, and that's that's fun though. That's the fun part about this. But I wish we would have had a the ability to edit that podcast so I could have given my great takes about how good this Bucks team is going to be now. But You know what's terrible? And after doing this podcast or have for four years, mm-hmm. I'm only ever reminded of the mistakes I've made. <laughs> Never am I ever told. Wow, I learned Joel, a lot from this podcast. Yeah. You got that right. <laughs> it's always, remember when you said Peloton was a good investment? And in reality, if I, I even had to go back and remind <laughs> Make sure that that wasn't what I said because what I said was that it was out, it was a really cool business model that had an outrageous their valuation was the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. I I on multiple podcasts talked about how it was valued at double the price of Suncor. <laughs> if people thought that that was, meant me thinking it was valuable or um, properly priced, I mean, that's not on me. So well, they're going to head back to that now with their partnership with Lululemon, with Lululemon, right? Yeah. Which made a quite the blunder with Mir wrote down the entire purchase. It was like a $400 million buy. And now they're getting in bed with Peloton, which I actually think is a really interesting opportunity. Um, when it comes to returns and in, in investments, it's always about the price you pay. It has nothing to do with whether or not the product's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can go back through back to 2000 when you looked at all of those um, internet companies that this is when the scale of the internet was viewed in the same way that streaming companies and and um, Zoom and every business of the pandemic were viewed in terms of them acquiring customers, mm-hmm. it was assumed that every business on the internet was going to be infinity, and it turns out only five were. Yeah, um, <laughs> the same and five we expected before. It, yeah, <laughs> exa- exactly. So um, the price that you paid really mattered. I mean, you could have bought Cisco, which is still one of the most important tech companies of our time and not made any money for 20 years, right? It's the same thing mm-hmm. when you're buying Zoom or you're buying Peloton or you're buying any number of the weird business models that popped up in 2020, 2021, right? Um, so, I mean, gosh, you could even speak to the the blunder that is Disney at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, they, through 2020, I mean, 2018 to 2020, they had one of the craziest runs of, of box office hits. Yeah. Right? Seven to eight out of the top 10 were always Disney products. And then the pandemic hit and they overproduced and they had what I would deem to be a lower quality product. And then they turned to Disney Plus and they felt as though Disney Plus was going to turn into Netflix. It kind of did. And then what else was there to, to, to look at moving forward? 
and, and get excited about when you're owning the equity in the stock and it's now at all-time lows or relatively all-time lows. Mm-hmm. So that's sad. And I suppose what I'm trying to get at here is that um, I was while wrong. I was wrong, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a reality of life that people re- remember you not for the things you got right, but for the things you got wrong. And being a take person on a podcast really puts you at risk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about what are you going to do for me tomorrow? I mean, we used to talk about, you know, it's not about what you're doing for me yesterday. That's what you do for me today. I feel like that's even shifted to what are you going to do for me tomorrow? So we got to be on the cutting edge here. Yeah. So what's podcast. happening next week's podcast? Yeah. Cam? <laughs> um, um, for this one, I want to s- kind of jump into markets really quickly. I've been reminded by a number of people how challenging the last two and a half months have been, given mm-hmm. that the market has given back eight, nine, 10%. It's almost as though the world's ending again. Canada is now down on the year. Mm. The only markets really performing relatively well has been the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. And a hot landing is returning. Or what was deemed to be a guaranteed soft landing, they have inflation under control, is now becoming, or it's now in question. So when is this? This is the longest landing I've ever Yeah, when is this plane going to land? <laughs> This is like we're circling the airport for <laughs> for a months now. It's terrible. I, I mean, year-over-year inflation is down to three. Mm-hmm. And the Fed and the Bank of Canada have a mandate of two. And if it's becoming more difficult to get to two, the closer you get to it, right? And there's been a few things popping up. Did you see the um, union negotiations at the car, the automakers? I saw the news about it. I wasn't sure if I... I don't think I know what the... They're getting 50% raises. Mm. That is inflationary. Yeah. So, and then there were, so there was similar kickback or similar news about the increases on the... I don't know what the union would be called, but essentially like the drive, like truck drivers in the United States as well. Yeah. Uh, having, and healthcare workers are now, going, are now striking. Uh, it, uh, what I've read anyways is that in 22 states, there's striking union workers or uh, the health healthcare unions are striking. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't deem this to be something that's slowing down. I think that once you've, you've started to recognize it in, especially in healthcare locally and teachers for that matter, they haven't seen raises in, in some cases a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we've seen eight plus percent inflation for a year or two. That's tough to reconcile. So the, the hot landing thesis returning makes a lot of sense as we near our, our 2% goal for the Fed and the Bank of Canada. So this is where the structural pressure still remain. I think a lot of the easy wins are out. We've, we've accomplished them. The, the healthcare uh, inflation coming back down, the supply chain problems, the energy costs are, well, back to a little bit above average is moved out of the inflation number. And, but... The, the labor inflation, so cost of, of work, is mm-hmm. reinflating. That is core pressure number one. Um, budget deficits from all of our governments, Canada, the United States, running massive deficits. It looks like the United States is going to run a $2 trillion deficit. Um, Sleepy Joe. Yeah, our, <laughs> our governments are not helping our policymakers on the, the money side. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's becoming challenging for them to to battle against what our what our um, governments are doing. That plus the reshoring of China to or from China to Mexico and to the United States and to Canada in terms of our, of supply chain, the the Chips Act down in the United States, all of these things are contributing to an increase in inflation, mm-hmm. and that combined with housing that's out of control, a lack thereof, and we're in a position in my opinion where we're the narrative is going to be higher for longer at least for the foreseeable six-month future now i want to then transition a little bit here to what i thought was a really interesting report from deloitte Hmm. and deloitte has i mean they do a million things remember that one podcast where we talked about like where all the big four accounting firms make all their money Mm -hmm. um not accounting Yeah, it's not. It's definitely uh, consulting. Anyways, they kind of talked about Canada in that it's really struggled this year. I mean, the stock market itself is down 2.5%. 
Um, but what was most interesting for me was their, their belief that we were going to return to normalcy and growth again in 2024. And they believe that to be that we will, by mid-2025, be back down to 3% borrow rate. So you're, we're, we're on talking... The, on the backs of what, I guess, maybe I'm not to skip ahead on your explanation. Well, I think that's on the backs of just a inflation coming back down closer to 2%. No longer are we increasing interest rates, but they'll stay stagnant at where they're at. Mm-hmm. And then you have an increase in... Um, people moving to this country. Yeah, population increase, so yeah. population, again, is the key to having a strong economy. Mm-hmm. Now, don't get me wrong, we still have issues. Yeah, and, well, I was going to say, like, I mean, the, the fact that it's, it's primarily based off, like, and I mean, you, I think another key thing there for population growth is like working class population growth. And so I think there's been a lot, actually a lot of posts I've seen in the last month, let's call it, talking about immigration stats and how, you know, X percentage of our population growth in 2023 or 2022 or whatever has come from, from immigration. So 98% rather than organic in terms of like actual birth rates. Birth rates are at a very, we've talked about the kind of population <laughs> crisis or the birth rate crisis. I mean, yeah. that, that's something that, you know, Elon Musk kind of got, not not because of that he got famous, but one of the things he is famous for is always talking about there being a population crisis, especially in the Western kind of civilized world, not being able to necessarily replace ourselves. And I think those rates are super low. And obviously, we looked at those and said, well, we need to supplement that with, with higher immigration numbers. Mm-hmm. And we've talked before about how you need to have strategic immigration in terms of the skilled work like mm-hmm. you have a balance obviously there's the social aspect of of you know taking care of the world and you know, i think people can get on board with that and making sure that we have, we're, a, we're a safe place a good place to live etc providing for people who um you know need to get back up on their feet but also a mix of having skilled workers who like the end you know stem type industry immigration to bring people in to, at the highest level of innovation in order to spur economic growth, et cetera. And how, how can we best support that? The, again, talking about the fact that our birth rates are low, it's like, yes, but okay, population growth. Yes. We're, maybe we were up to, let's say we get back up to two, you know, per person or whatever, two mm-hmm. kids. Those kids are babies. Mm-hmm. So like, yes, we need to work on, I think that needs to be this like is a multi-generational thing. Yes, exactly. So it's like at the end of the day, the short term, answer for this is going to have to be immigration Mm -hmm. if we want to be able to get to that next stage in our multi-generational issue and i guess getting back to your maybe you want to i know i kind of railroaded you there a little bit with the immigration talk but in relation to the deloitte canada report i think obviously that needs to be or that is a huge factor in terms of a um a big cog in the wheel of being able to see positive results and call it 18 months so this is where i i I was trying to push the conversation and this is where recently we had one of the big bank economic analysts or we'll call it representatives Mm -hmm. came on bnn and they were talking about what the cmhc needs to do in order to um, solve our three plus million housing deficit across Canada and they believe that it's um, become wizards. Yeah. (laughs) It's a mixture between uh, private and then policy and CMHC is a government entity and um, private obviously being private businesses and where they can come in to fix our problem, Mm -hmm. our housing crisis. And I feel like this is a, from a Canadian investor perspective and one of the first opportunities we've had to be ultra bullish Canada specific um, industry specific in my wealth management career mm-hmm. we we do get instances where investing in the oil and gas energy sector is attractive like right now for instance and then we have times where it's downright terrifying and it's probably going to zero which was 2014 2015 yeah, when i first started yeah. um <laughs> yeah. and i believe that we're about to go through a pretty great cycle 
10 plus year cycle where you can invest in real estate. And that doesn't mean you going and buying all the REITs. This means think outside the box a little bit. I was listening to a podcast, um, Trends with Friends, which, I mean, unless you're a market nerd, I don't recommend, Mm -hmm. um, where they talked about, okay, NVIDIA is on fire. It's not going to stop being on fire. It's valued at 100 plus times sales. Let's assume it's pretty fully valued. Where do you make money after that? Who produces their chips? What are the what goes into manufacturing an H100 and H200 chip? Mm-hmm. And that's where I want people to think about um, housing. Mm-hmm. That's where I want them to start thinking about demographics in Canada. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at what is perceived to be an opportunity, we need three million house, housing units, mm-hmm. and we have a population that is not stopping in terms of growth. And I don't see any incentive from any of the po- um, political entities to stop with immigration, no matter how bad it gets with Modi and Justin Trudeau. Yeah. I believe that this is a generational opportunity for millennials to invest in the Canadian housing market. And that's start to think about builders, start to think about financing, start to think about groups that manage units. Mm-hmm. So yeah, less so is, on the volatility of, like you said, owning a property. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Think for a second, who is doing this at scale? Who is providing the, the, um, the materials for building these, this house, these housing units? Think about who's managing these housing units. And then perceive that as opportunity. There's a million names that I can, I can rattle off that are in the industry. I don't feel like doing that because that would then be perceived inappropriately and i don't want anyone being like you told me this you stock is to good. repeat that peloton tape. you want you want some information give me a show but <laughs> but i do believe that through 2030 this is an amazing opportunity like for sure it is because we're going to get the mother of all tailwinds for this stuff where you already have the demographics so people that are going to demand to buy it i believe we're at peak interest rates so on a reverse on the reverse end of this, mm-hmm. if Deloitte's right and we start to see a 2.5% haircut, so if people are doing the math, that's 10 25 basis points cuts by 2025. If all of those things happen, you have an amazing opportunity. That plus, you're going to get money jammed down the throats of private enterprise to go and build all this stuff. Right, and I mean, that's the biggest... Tax incentives factor here. All yeah. of that stuff yeah. is going to lead to profitability. It's going to lead to... A whole bunch of increased volume, mm-hmm. revenue. That is, in my opinion, an incredible opportunity. Because I, I think when they talk about private sector, obviously needing, like I think the the title is, private sector plays key role in boosting housing supply, but must up its game. That's what the CMHC says. Mm-hmm. That you 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 can't. I think saying that from the public sector standpoint is an easy thing to say. Private, <laughs> it's like, well, if I'm a business owner, I need to be. We're going to use that word again be incentivized to take the risk in order to do these things. Mm-hmm. And so one small step that they we tried about two weeks ago or three weeks ago in, in terms of the GST rebate, so cutting the costs of being able to develop new housing starts that meet the criteria that were outlined in, in, in that release, in addition to the there is more to come quote from Mr. Trudeau and Krista Freeland talking about additional incentives I think that are going to be put in place to address the housing crisis. Mm-hmm. Whether or not the liberal government's going to be in power in 2030 or even in two years from now, wherever it might be is obviously up in the air at the end of the day, whoever the leadership is going to be, this is going, to, uh, like you said, there's no way that immigration is not going to be uh, an important cog in the wheel and incentivizing growth in and. Uh, incentivizing the private sector to contribute to this growth is going to be number two. And so we also chatted about, I think I might've said it in the podcast last week or the week before about kind of the, the record for housing starts ever or housing completions in this country was set in like the eighties or the seventies. Mm-hmm. And so what that says to me is that, okay, from an innovation standpoint, we're not going to be able to just say, well, there's this new technology that's going to allow us to build this apartment this much faster or uh, this, you know, this house this much, this much faster. Some of that comes down to maybe some bureaucracy on red tape in terms mm. of getting things done, but a lot of it's going to be volume-based. So how many people, how many vendors are coming, how many private sector businesses are coming to the table saying that we're willing to take on these projects? Mm-hmm. So we have to increase that volume, increase the number of businesses from the private sector that are 
going into this that are going to be able to increase that number faster? Because I think we talked about it. If they continue to do it at the same rate, essentially there needs to be a 50% increase in order to meet the 2030 target, which, I mean, I'm not sure who's going to... I think CMHC did say it. It's like, it's impossible to actually reach this, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be, obviously, we can aim high, and if we're, if we're not going to get there, we're not going to get there because of economics, but it doesn't mean we, we, we can't keep doing what we're doing or there will literally be a crisis, Yeah, which is, I mean, by the definition, we might be in one right now to a degree, but... Well, I think that's uh, honestly... Even just looking at the our, our generation's view of opportunity in our country mm-hmm. and what is deemed to be a happy life and the ownership of a home, they seem pretty dejected. So I think yeah, just generationally, yeah. it is. It seems to me that we're in a crisis for the younger, the sub thirty group that is trying to acquire a home but hasn't yet. The unhoused. That or the un the people that aren't unowner they're not owning a home, so um, without necessarily moving on, I I want to move into what I think is another really interesting opportunity, which is carbon credits. I was listening to a po- podcast where they um, the Occidental Petroleum CEO Vicky Holub was speaking, and she was talking about the business of Occidental. Occidental, for those that don't know, is owned. Well, 25.3% of Oxy is owned by Berkshire Hathaway. And quite frankly, if Warren Buffett and team are interested in owning a quarter of one of the larger oil and gas companies in the United States and it make it its sixth largest holding, I want to listen to what that CEO has to say. (laughs) And um, for the most part, the CEO was just kind of just speaking to the successes that they've had over the last couple of years. Uh, the the pe- person interviewing wanted to get some information on oil prices, where they thought they were going, what how they would react from a productive uh, production perspective. But at the end, they started to speak to a recent deal that they did with Amazon, which was Amazon purchasing contracts from Occidental for carbon credits. And in the United States, different than us, they've chosen to put a price on uh, carbon differently. And Occidental has started to build what is leading edge on the um, carbon removal front. Mm-hmm. So, yes, sure, they, they pull the, a big portion of their business in the Permian. They produce oil and gas. That's a big part of their business. But they've also shifted and pivoted into carbon credits and carbon removal. And putting a price there and selling it to large organizations or the removal of carbon to, to large organizations is a growth area for them. There aren't a lot of major oil and gas companies that are talking about this. Um, I wouldn't call or I wouldn't put Occidental into the ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell, BP size. They're not majors, but they are an interesting play here for me. And I think just her calling into... I don't know, the popular conversation, especially with regards to energy, carbon credits is interesting. She's talking her book, but to me, this is currently still in its infancy. Mm-hmm. We've had, we've just gotten through a seven-year boom in solar. Mm-hmm. And to me, the next, or the future, or the next 10 years is going to be uranium and carbon credits and carbon capture. And this is an interesting yeah. opportunity, personally. I think Canada is going to probably pay a lot of attention to this because politics does not, in this country, stray away from environmental mm-hmm. questions. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, even right now in, in Manitoba, they're having an election and it's top of mind. I think in BC, for the last two decades, it's always been very important. Mm-hmm. Alberta, we've kind of been on the other end of it, yeah. but it still is a battleground for sure, mm-hmm. at least with the federal government. So. Yeah, I think it's a great area of opportunity for investment, like you said. I think one thing that I can – this is anecdotal maybe in just the way I feel about it, but I feel like there has been plenty of programs that have been rolled out in Canada, either by the federal governments or the provincial governments. But I feel like it's just – it's all kind of been melded into one – like it's almost like I don't know which way to go in order to – if I'm a company and I want to well, invest no, in this They just things. steal money from you and then they give it back to you later. Well, sorry, in terms of the carbon tax, 
Yeah, yeah that's what. Sure. But I'm just talking about even just like programs that would incentivize investment and or incentivize making a new product line or whatever it might mm-hmm. be with a business. I feel like there's too many options or there's too many intricacies to it. Whereas there needs to be more of a holistic approach to this, which I mean, asking, it's done in the U.S., which asking, is really interesting. Yeah, asking the federal government, the provincial governments, to get on board and everyone to be um, in consortium with that is not going to happen. Not going to happen. <laughs> but I think streamlining something that's a little bit more maybe make it understandable. I guess and understandable. That's one. I mean, I think yeah, a lot I'd, of people view tax as being bad or negative, <laughs> and then and or inflationary. All of those things may or may not be true. That's not really the point. It's the messaging. Yeah. And both sides are trying to do... They're actively bashing each other. So depending on which dogma you believe in mm-hmm. and which tribe you, you identify as, you are going to view it as either good or bad. And in my opinion, the United States has, for the most part, avoided the tax because it is basically a swear word in politics. Um, and they've decided to go the route of incentives and they've just they've built this massive pot of money and then they're distributing it out to businesses incentivizing them to create technological carbon solutions Mm -hmm. and i think that that's probably the right way to go um there's been quite a few podcasts actually where you can go in and look at how that cash is distributed out to businesses in the u.s Mm -hmm. um the person who runs their their ESG program in the, in the, well, more so on the E side is pretty outspoken and he goes and interviews quite a, quite a bit, Mm. mostly so that he can convey a message so that people can take advantage of the, the pile of cash that's available. And I mean, a year ago we talked about the, the, the differences in the programs and between the United States and Canada. And I think that that's an interesting, um, thread that we can pull on moving forward but yeah for sure and I, you know some of that does come down to you know size differences and the way they allocate yeah. their budgets and, and whatnot but i would be this is this is really interesting i'm sure you'll share the uh the link for this interview and i i think i think at the end of the day what you boiled it down to again is like just the difference in approach and and the messaging so that's one thing and i and again i would agree with your point that um less is more in terms of programs like this so making it as easy as possible for businesses to access funds or access an incentive is the way to go about it so hopefully we see something like that change in canada which again that might be part of this new line of you know (laughs) i think the messaging is as we get into election time i think it's kind of we can all feel that it's coming um is that you know the usually at that time it's it's messaging about how are we going to help you and so help you the consumer and help you the small business owner so it'll be interesting to see if if something like that is is talked about in in addition to the continuing messaging about the the carbon tax uh up until 2050 or whatever it is so so should we move on to spotify and talk just a little bit about something that is much more interesting to me than perhaps maybe everybody but no one thinks i've always felt that um the music industry went through a revolution in that from 2000 apparently 1999 the production team mentioned 99 yeah uh that (laughs) napster was sort of founded and through my entire high school career we i didn't i paid for music but everybody else was Stealing music <laughs> via LimeWire, etc., and I think rightly so. Artists were upset about it; they weren't getting compensated for it. Just as a quick sidebar, remember like how there would be like that one article or that one news story about someone getting actually prosecuted for having music, and you'd be like, <laughs> "Oh man, I can go to jail for this." Oh, I, they just missed me. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's assume we were good and we bought CDs, and we won't talk too much about that. But back in, call it, I don't know. 2000 or 97 to 2003 the large majority of revenue generated was from cd singles and cd sales Mm -hmm. that from 2000 the peak was 2001 in terms of revenue generated from 2001 to 2014 revenues got effectively cut in half because there was no way of pulling revenue out of the pockets of of listeners yeah and since then, you've seen the CD revenue sales go down. When you look at 
2021 CD sales, I don't even know if they exist. I think that's just people in their 80s buying Beatles CDs, and that's pretty much it. Uh, yeah. um, the, or 2011 GMC Sierras that ha- only have <laughs> yeah. CDs. Yeah, so. it's people that can't afford to upgrade their their cars, which <laughs> is fine. Um, and it's now the large majority is, is paid subscription and or on-demand streaming that's ad-supported. And this change has actually seen revenues finally eclipse the highs of 2000, 1999, 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. And what I want to kind of speak to here is that the end of print media, the end of, of traditional advertised cable media, a lot of people, especially Hollywood writers, actors, are feeling as though their way of life is, is going by the wayside. And the internet is the culprit, or streaming is the culprit, or this company or that company. And what I think would be in the best interest of everybody would be for them to come together instead of fight each other, which will never happen. But let's assume it's possible. They can all look at the music industry and be like, yo, this is what worked there. Let's try to shrink this 20-year gap of declining revenues, Mm -hmm. and let's get it down to one or two. And realize that the internet is an endless free distribution um, platform Mm -hmm. and how the heck do we start to extract that same revenue out of our customers because they still want our stuff i still want to be entertained and i think that it's unfortunate but the majority of of unions are talking past each other even ceos of the companies that they're negotiating with don't care about them either and it's a terrible position to be in but it's my opinion that we will eventually return back to a time where revenues will return to 2021 levels. Because if you were to do the same chart that you and I are looking at, no one else's, but it's the U S recorded music revenues by format. Um, when you, if you were to then extrapolate that to sports, extrapolate that to Disney, extrapolate that to, to, um, video Mm -hmm. revenues generated, it seems as though YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat have destroyed cable media. Netflix has destroyed cable media. And the revenues generated from cable media is plummeting. It used to be the fact that everybody paid $120 a month to watch HGTV or sports, right? That's going away. And no one is even has cable in their house besides you, apparently. And Got a good it's not likely going to change. We're all going to be in six or seven different streaming platforms. We're all going to be on Instagram and TikTok and YouTube. And we're either sort of paying or we're paying with our advertising eyeballs, but the revenue generated is lower than it was at its peak in 2021 or peak 2014. And in order for us to return to a growth, I shouldn't even say us, but for the industry to grow, mm-hmm. it needs to come together and rebundle. Because if they don't rebundle, if sports doesn't rebundle, if the NBA, the NHL, and the MLB don't get together because the NFL doesn't care about you. So if those three don't band together, if all of the the writers and then the the houses that build or make media don't get together and rebuild a new bundle that can be charged at a similar rate or higher, yep. they're not going to be able to demand it. It's it's like you have someone in each corner vying for the same customer. And you're all pulling in the opposite direction. Right. Yep. And it's really challenging to make something compelling enough to justify price. Mm-hmm. In the past, Disney won. They were charging for ESPN and they, then and extracting it from the providers. They were double dipping to an extent. Then they, they added Disney Plus to that. So they were triple dipping. In the music industry, this inevitably happened. But in media, if they want to return to it, because I think with the most recent writer's strike and then the res- resolution of it, the writers really got screwed. And uh, the majority of these houses are cutting back on spending right now because there's no money to be made. If we, they don't come together, I don't see how it doesn't, we don't have a 20-year um, hiatus. And I believe that 2021, 2020 was some of the best production media. The, it was kind of like the glory days. Mm-hmm. You had, you had well, a new show every so 15 mu- minutes. Yeah, there was so much volume. Yeah, I, I don't get back to the same amount of volume, per se, for a, a long time. But I think, I think what the, the long and short of it is, I mean, this is not necessarily great for the consumer, at the end of the day, because I mean, I, you, we've talked about like the death of the free subscription and 
peak consumer was definitely yeah. pandemic. So everything that, was free. But at the end of the day, that is yeah from a, from the business sense. Like I think you're right. And I, I whatever example you want to pick when when you are not working in some type of consortium together. Use that word twice today now. There's I can't even spell it. So. <laughs> there's a great chance that you're not gonna you're more successful when you're all working towards the same goal. And that goes for your employees and the CEO mm. and the competitors in the in the area as well. I I can't agree. Seeing this chart actually and, and seeing that we are I guess this is as of twenty twenty one, so I assume this actually this these bars or the the revenues have increased since Even then. Even more, yeah. Uh, since then exactly so i i think i think that can't be more the truth and it's like there's because the way their way of life you described earlier that people feeling like their way of life is going by the wayside their old life is going by the wayside your new life can be better or back to the same or back to your expectation but it's it's gonna have to be this this change in delivery, this change in bundling, this change in... Yeah, so for, for the, the radio people, radio hosts in town that are all fractured into their own little thing... Come together. Come together. Because that will be how you make more money. If you don't, you're just going to be mad at each other. You're stealing each You're buying for each other's audiences when in reality you should come together and work together. Um, Cam, mm. what are your thoughts on... I love how you identify as European. Um, the Ryder Cup. Okay, well, I have a direct tie. So what? Like one. Your family separation. was from Europe. My father. Like it's, it's not like it's every not Canadian. Like, it's not like my. <laughs> it's not like my great great grandfather immigrated here. So, um, yeah, it it was a great weekend for us Europeans <laughs> in terms of essentially closing things out on day one, more yeah. or less having that much of a lead off after one day so for those that don't understand like the Ryder cup is a three-day event five sessions some some group play and some individual play and you earn either a point or a half point for every single match and you have to get to a certain number and and you win so after the first day the europeans had a i think five and a half point lead or five point lead on the american team and there was we can get into like kind of the sport aspect of it but I think the some of the interesting things like so again one of our favorite follows and and sport fact sharers is is Joe Pompliano and and Joe was talking about kind of just like the business of the Ryder Cup too and how it's kind of one of these it is one of these last things that where it generates obviously a you know hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue uh it's a every two year event it's been around for close to 100 years I feel like um so maybe 50 of these events are 40 some of these events over time and it's gotten into this you know pretty massive tv event obviously tough sometimes when you have they switch where the location is either in north america like in the united states or in somewhere in europe so sometimes a bit tougher to follow when you're a north american fan but hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue the players the 24 players that head over 12 from each team earn zero for playing for their teams now i mean the fact that they are on this kind of global stage and this huge event, obviously maybe that leads to them, especially some of these younger, like there's, I think there was four rookies on each team, you know, maybe a good play and how charismatic they are might lead to a new sponsorship deal or two for them uh, into the future. So maybe indirectly is a good way of maybe increasing their profile and increasing their individual revenues on a go forward basis. But very interesting that like that was one of the biggest takes from the weekend was that the American players and specifically maybe a couple of them were in protest of the fact that, Hey, I have to give up a week and a half, two weeks of my off season, quote unquote, to come play in this and I'm not being compensated for it. And so, and they don't like, they don't wear sponsor, like they don't wear any of their sponsor stuff. Right. It's always like us or European gear. So there's no, no sponsorship on the players as there normally would be. So, Essentially, it's them giving up their time to be a part of... It's like no different than the Olympics kind of thing, right? Where the NHL players in the Winter Olympics or the NBA players in the Summer Olympics, they go over and play. Now, they might be compensated by their national body in some cases, but I don't think the USGA or the RNA in Europe... Like, there's, there's no money flowing to these players. Now, I mean, cry me a river, 
at the end of the day. I mean, each one of these guys is literally the highest paid player in their. Exactly. I mean, yeah, it's all relative to, like, I mean, if you compare them to the, you know, NFL quarterback, yeah, they're not making 40 sheets a year, throwing three interceptions and, and still collecting their paycheck. But Rory is. Yeah, but Rory is. But he's there, winning, too. There's enough where it's like, I think this should be. It's very. They actually described it. Uh, I was listening to. It was on the Golf Channel. Is it I actually. Kind of going to the Olympics? It, it is. It's it's more about, you know, but it, it, it's the. It's Does the, Sydney Crosby's, Crosby get paid for going to the Olympics? No, that's what I'm saying. That's what they don't get paid to go. They don't get compensated to go. It's what about part of the profile of Ovechkin? the sport and the profile of the individual players right. to potentially profit on that in the future with obviously being on that global stage. That's how yeah. it's marketed to them, or that's how I would see it. But it's the, I think the biggest issue with this is that you've now. Like the Olympics have turned in, have obviously started as this thing where it was a celebration of sport, and now it's this massive business. The Ryder Cup was a celebration of golf specifically, and now it's turned into this massive business. There's money, people are making a bunch of money off of this. It's not like they're netting zero dollars at the end of the day that this is a nonprofit. They're, there's money exchanging hands. You think they didn't increase their followers? The, people aren't more interested in Rory now that he's like... I'm, I'm not saying that they... This is all good. I'm not saying that it's not, but that's the, that's the conversation that's happening. Is that, okay, well, now we know there's actually... This information is shared in terms of how much money is being made. I didn't know who that McIntyre guy even was. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I'm not saying that the global profile that, of these guys don't change, but it's just the... The, the conversation was evident and, and one of the, what I was getting at on the golf channel was, I can't remember the guy's name. I think Paul McGinley, I think he was an ex captain and player in the Ryder cup for the European side. And he basically said, it's a very, is it, without being controversial, which it was controversial is that the, it's very typical of the American way of life and the American way of thinking to say, if I'm doing something that generates money, then I should be compensated for it. Whereas the Europeans are like, this is for the pride of the sport and the pride of where we're from to want to play in this, especially overseas. I feel like it's less of a burden on American players when you have to take a three-hour flight to Georgia to play in this rather than traveling over to Italy to be a part of the Ryder Cup. <sighs> and so tough. So tough. <laughs> but the, that, that was the way it's been, at least the narrative has been viewed to say, well, Americans are less motivated and less incentivized to perform well because they haven't won in Europe in 30 years since 1993 they haven't won a Ryder Cup in Europe and it's like well we'll perform when we're on home soil we want to defend home soil USA USA we're going overseas yeah okay we want to be a part of this it's cool we're in the American flag but we might not put the same kind of effort in to it because number one we're not getting paid and number two it's not on home soil which is like whether or not that's true or not but it's the results of the results in terms of how they have failed to be a champion overseas. And as much as, as more and more of this information comes out in terms of saying, wow, it makes a lot of money and these guys aren't getting compensated. Do you think that's part of the reason why they don't care that very much? So it's like this media generated, social media generated conversation that then got basically lynched onto um, nice a man. few of the players this weekend. And that really led to the drama. Cause like, again, I, I talk about the Friday Friday, you watch your like five point difference. You're like weekend doesn't even matter. But then Saturday came, there was a bunch of kind of drama, call it like mm -hmm. soap opera type drama in terms of some of the etiquette that was displayed by some of the players and, and, even, and, and between players and fans, etc. So I think it ended up being a really successful event for the game of golf. I think by and large, they had a few dips in, maybe like quality of play during this year, but the venue was phenomenal. The venue was phenomenal. The, the 18 month stretch or 12 month stretch of, of golf and in, in terms of its popularity from a social media standpoint, I don't think they could have really like scripted anything better. They've had whether or not the Netflix special was that successful, but it's probably going to be even more watched this upcoming year because of the continued drama in the sport there has been a huge, through the pandemic and even more so after, a huge influx of social media golf. So, like, you see, like, we mentioned, like, I never really circled back on this, but, like, so, like, DJ Khaled and um, all these, let's just call it, all these social media stars that are getting into golf and, like, playing it and showing it on YouTube, um, on their on Instagram, whatever it might be, sharing it that way. They've had a lot of big profile people get into the game and be associated with it in terms of partnerships and in terms of just sharing the game of golf. And I feel like 
they, as much as there was this reckoning for the PGA and it was obviously viewed as this is terrible for golf in terms of, you know, live being created and this fracturing of the sport. I'm pretty sure the last 18 months of returns have been, have paid that off in spades and kind of culminated again with this, this Ryder cup was really pumped up. Obviously they wish it was a bit more competitive heading into the Sunday. There was still some drama on the Sunday, but it kind of, I, I left Sunday thinking, wow, I can't wait for the next one. That's the way I was thinking. Yeah, completely. So, I think that's the positive. That, that they need to elevate the it. President's Cup because, quite honestly, this is... So the President's Cup is another one that happens every two years, but is America versus the rest of the world. Right. I believe, for me personally, I would rather go to the Ryder Cup in Europe... Than the Ryder Cup in the United States. No, than any other sporting event with the exception of the Super Bowl and probably World Cup. Wow. That would be super fun. To be fair, golf nerd. Yeah, of course. That <laughs> my massive bias. It's my yeah. favorite sport. Yeah. But nonetheless, I think that would be a really fun event to go to. I'd rather actually go to the Ryder Cup than go to the Masters. Yeah, well, I think there's something about this that actually came about with, with golf in general um, going forward. Like, the, the schedule in golf does not have any, any real pumped-up team event. There's no match play events. That's the other thing. So well, there are, but they're... Well, they're, well they're, and they're being taken away um, off the schedule. So, uh, and for people, so match play, so stroke play would be what you're going out and playing with your friends most of the time. You count every stroke, who wins at the end of the 18 holes. Match play is hole by hole. Yeah. So you have these mini competitions throughout, right? Like you could start off hot and then have a few blow up holes. Maybe you, the person that wins the match might not actually be the person who had the least amount of strokes. That's the thing that makes it compelling and keeps keeps the sport more interesting on a day-to-day or a hole-to-hole. So that's another way of, I think, actually marketing more to the North American way of competition and is is the winner or loser conversation can happen on a hole-to-hole basis rather than a, over a four-day period where you have to follow it or you may or may not be interested in following it over four days. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the biggest things that the PGA needs to, or golf in general needs to, uh, and Liv has, has tried to do this, is saying, how do we get more eyeballs consistently on the sport rather than people just tuning in on the Sunday for the back nine? So you have four days of competition and people are watching one-eighth of what's happening. Mm-hmm. So anyways, there's, again, I don't think golf could have really seen a better 18-month return on eyeballs and drama and everything, even though a lot of the narrative was this is bad for golf. I think this has all been good for golf. And it's 100% culminated it with this Ryder Cup uh, most recently. And I think there's been some talking points that have come out of this to create some more individual rivalries potentially, which at the end of the day, that's what people are entertained the most by sports is competition, drama, rivalries, so we'll see if they can continue to kind of build on this because I, I think the more that they can create that sense of competition and sense of individual and or team aspects of me versus you, I think they're going to be even more successful. Completely agree. And any recommendations heading into the week? Well, I actually wanted week? to follow up on a couple things that we have talked about on previous podcasts. So one was... It. I'm sure everyone, it was pretty viral uh, in terms of the kind of the first couple concerts there at the Sphere in in Las Vegas. So I think it's U2, I think, is my understanding is the the first person or the first band that's, that's performing their first act that's being there. Um, so again, from Joe Pomp, so a couple of just notes now that it's obviously been in operation for a bit. Advertising rates for the $2.3 billion MSG Sphere have been leaked. 450 grand a day to advertise on the outside. <laughs> 650,000 for the week, so obviously a way better deal to do it for the week. <laughs> Those prices include working with MSG's 300 plus designers on the creative and on the creative aspect of it, and they estimate f- 4.7 million daily impressions from advertising. So 300,000 in person, obviously people driving around in Las Vegas, 4.4 million on socials. Holy moly. Dolan is a genius. I mean, for as bad as his sports teams are, I would agree. So it's that's going to be – it has already become a talking point, I would say, with, with just that release of the first couple of videos that have been shared on social of people inside that concert venue or there for a concert. Obviously, there's going to be other events other than just concerts in there. It's on a bucket list item for people already. Oh, yeah. Like, Got to go down there and see U2 or – 
eventually, obviously, when they bring other acts there, like, you know, maybe duck dovetailing into my next point on a follow-up is I want to go see Taylor Swift there or whatever it might be, right? And so the other thing I wanted to follow up on, and we can't get away from it. She's the biggest thing on, on the planet right now from an entertainment standpoint. And obviously with all of the talk about her now dating Travis Kelsey of the Kansas City Chiefs, we talked about some of the early returns on his personal side of things in terms of his social followings and his jersey sales, et cetera. For the NFL, they are completely leading into this. They got, oh, her, yeah. they got her face as their, you know, Twitter or their ex background. They got they're sharing, you know, lyrics every week or every day uh, in, in terms of their posts and, and and making linkages or making analogies between football and Taylor Swift. The Chiefs played the Jets on Sunday, Sunday night football. Twenty seven million average viewers for that game. Teen girl viewership up 53%. Most watched Sunday show since Super Bowl. Most, for context, the 2023 NBA Finals averaged 11.6 million viewers on ABC. And this week four Sunday nighter, 27 million average viewers. Holy crap. So as they know that based off of the history of Taylor Swift relationships only lasting X amount of time, I know that you're on the record of saying that they're going to get married and this is a long-term thing. Yeah, it but, is. But in terms of the short term, let's pump everything we can into promoting this thing. Yeah, this is the most American thing that's happened. Yeah, this is exactly back to the American way of thinking. Yeah, this is, this is the, the high fo- school The football star the football gets star. the girl. Yeah. You have the NFL that is on fire. You have a, a world that's coming together around a relationship. Fox News, CNN, doesn't matter. They're all in love with what is, if you listen to... They're in love with the story. Yeah, Yeah. they're in love with the story. If you listen to Travis Kelsey, that guy is liberal, progressive. Yeah, And then you have Taylor Swift hanging out with Ryan Reynolds and Hugh Jackman and Blake Lively. Half the game is centered around a relationship outside of the game. This is what we needed to come together. I thought it was going to be our mutual hatred for another nation. It wasn't. <laughs> it was a relationship. It was a relationship. And this, to me, is how Taylor Swift ends her relationship roller coaster. It ends with the hot, with the football player. Perfect. Just what we want all of our <laughs> our children to children aspire to be. Just, just go mustache find your, wearing. Just go find yourself a tight ends, a jock in the NFL. <laughs> Um, yeah, anyways, I just wanted to follow up on those couple of things. It, it is, I think we think we can go a podcast right now without mentioning her just because she is the, like, we the talked hottest about thing previously with her, her, <laughs> her concert tour was literally changing the economic numbers of states. Yeah. Like in a meaningful way. So it's, Mind blowing. it's incredible to see the phenomena that she is and how she's gone about it. And the fact that now this is now dovetailed into this relationship and this other thing that's now profiting the most profitable sports organization in North America is just this takes the cake. So yeah. I'm sure we're going to have weeks and weeks and weeks more of NFL insiders following her every move and reporting on her whereabouts and the the output that comes from her going to games in terms of the return for the NFL. So I'll be it's a very interesting little microcosm of the um, NFL sport that we'll be able to follow. It's great. Cam, I'll look for you next week. Yeah, tune in for Swifty Talk next Wednesday. (laughs) All right, take care.